1: You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth. You can't handle the truth.
0: Hello again, free thinkers. Welcome back to the Free Thought Project podcast. My name is Jason Bassler, and joining me is the Free Thought Project editor in chief, Matt Agarist. So first off, we wanted to apologize for missing our episode last week. That was actually the first week uh, since the beginning of the year that we missed an episode. And to be honest, I'm such a creature of routine, I missed it. I felt off all week not having the podcast out. But here we are, we're back this week, and we have an awesome guest joining us. Our guest this week is Chair of the Foundation for New Hampshire Independence. He is the Founder and Editor-in-Chief for Liberty Block. He's written numerous books books. ...and was recently on the Sam Tripoli Tinfoil Podcast. Our guest is Alou Axelman, who has been creating quite the stir in New Hampshire where he lives... ...with the Free State Project, and he's been on a book-writing spree for the past six months. Alou also shared several important projects that he's currently working on, which we get into during the podcast. Now, I will mention that Alou was watching his six-month-old baby while recording the podcast... And at times you could hear it in the background, but rest assured guys, we took several breaks throughout the podcast just to check on the baby. So you're going to love this podcast. This has so much information, so much good knowledge, and I highly suggest following Alou's work for more. But for now, here's our interview with Alou Axelman. Lou Axelman, welcome to the Free Thought Project podcast. Thanks for joining us today, and we're excited to talk about your books, your work, and your thoughts on the current state of politics and culture. And speaking of books, uh, we will be discussing several of your books. It looks like you've written about ten books, if my my count is correct, and uh, four of them were published this year. I'm excited to talk about that. I'm excited to get into your work with Liberty Block. But I first wanted to hear about your recent experience at Porkfest this year, uh, which just wrapped up, of course, a couple of weeks ago. It was the 20th anniversary of Porkfest, and it had some big name speakers this year, including RFK Jr., uh, even though the Democrats (laughs) urged him not to do it. And I I know know, some libertarians had mixed feelings about him attending. Um, Also, I know you've lived in New Hampshire for a while now with the Free State Project. And uh, I, I personally love the concept of the Free State Project and amassing 20,000 libertarians to all live in one place. Uh, I even considered moving to New Hampshire at one point. And uh, my, my good friend and former podcast guest on this show, uh, Pete Ayer, the, the Cop Block co-founder, lived in Keene, New Hampshire for years. And I kind of feel like through his posts, I saw a lot of what was going on. And I also remember uh, Derek Jay's Victimless Crime Spree documentary. So you know, the Free State Project's been going on for a while now. Um, I guess I'll, I'll start with asking, you know, how was Pork Fest? Uh, how was RFK Jr's speech? And uh, you know, what's it like living with a, a bunch of like-minded freedom lovers in the, the Free State Project?
2: Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. There's a lot there, so it'll take um, around a decade to answer everything. So I hope it <laughs> has to go for a while. Um, starting with Pork Fest, it was awesome. I went for the longest time that I've gone so far. I've, I usually go for the full week. The last six years. I went for a fork fest, so I went a few days early for the weekend where it's even more anarchist and decentralized, the fork fest before the actual pork fest. I went for that, but also because my, my friend, Nikki, was getting married during pork fest. So I spent like eight days up there, which was awesome. It was a fantastic time. It always is. It's always unique and different. I always do too much during pork fest. I actually didn't see RFK speak. I wasn't even thinking about it. I, I, was, I, did, I spoke like 10 or 12 times throughout the week, and I did a yeah. A oh, wow. Boxing clinic and a grappling clinic for free for all the people there, so that was awesome. And I was manning my table of the Liberty Block and the books we were vending, so we sold a few dozen books. And I was also the deputy coordinator for Free Aid, which is the EMS program, the emergency medical services, along with my brother running that. So I was busy with that as well. So I was so busy the whole week. Um, and I had my baby, so and for three of the days, my wife went back home to work during the middle of the week, so I was with my baby alone. And I was with him, you know, the whole week, and alone for three days. So I was so busy. Um, wow. Again, RFK got a lot of attention, good and bad, and this and that. There was controversy, and I, I I'm ambivalent. I see both sides of that controversy. Um, I was not very inclined to disarm to go see him speak because the pavilion was a gunfree zone for that hour. But um, th- I, I didn't during port I didn't even notice, like, because there was a million other storylines going on with me, with the bad rain later in the week, canceling some stuff to my, my speeches, my books, I debated twice during the week and that was awesome. So I was so busy. Like I, I didn't even think about RFK all week long, to be honest.
0: That seems pretty much, uh, aligned with your character from what I could tell. It seems like you, you exhaust yourself for the cause of Liberty. So it doesn't surprise me that you're doing so much. Hopefully you had a little bit of time to enjoy yourself and, uh, I don't know, maybe mingle a little bit and, and maybe not be so, objective Focused and oriented, which, you know, I could appreciate personally, but you know, sometimes we have to chill out and try to try to enjoy the moment if possible. But I I know that NBC 10 Boston recently came to New Hampshire and interviewed both the Free State Project participants uh, and also some normies who also live in the state. Uh, I I watched one episode this morning entitled uh, Life, Liberty and the Pursuit of New Hampshire. Episode one which you were featured in. I guess I had some mixed feelings about it all, but I wanted to to get your take before divulging my opinion. Uh, what was your take on the episode? And did the NBC journalists treat you in fair? And do you feel like it was kind of like a, a fair expose?
2: Yeah, Shira and Dan from NBC Boston, I think did a fantastic job as journalists being objective and more so than any other mainstream journalists. They gave us, I think, a fair shake. They interviewed us. They they spent time in Porkfest. It wasn't like a drive-by shooting. They spent like the week there, I think, last year and they were there this year. Um, and then they came to my house for an extended interview. Um, so on the episode it was a few a few seconds or a minute, but like they were here interviewing me with my family for like an hour or two in the house. So I, I think overall they're good people. I trust them and they, they were trying to do balanced reporting and they did very well. They did and you said normies. I would disagree, they weren't normies, they interviewed the Anti-free stater, authoritarian people who hate liberty and and just hate our whole movement. Um, so so most Normies support us and they agree with with generally pro-liberty principles. They interview the people who are the biggest opponents of uh, um, the free state movement. Sure. Um, but I was very balanced. You know, they they got pretty much half and half. Like every episode, they had kind of both sides and they they had them all in studio, both sides. So I think it was very balanced. I have very few complaints about. The, the whole series. It was like uh, 11 episodes, I believe. And they did a really good job being fair and balanced. That being fair is good for us because we have the arguments and logic and data and morality on our side. Right. And the opponents yes. have nothing of substance except that they hate liberty, they hate peace, they hate that we are um, immigrating to the state, and they hate that we're getting involved in civic um, procedures and getting involved in elections and our civic duties, which is kind of counter to what the authoritarians have been saying for a while.
0: Right. Yeah. Well, that's that's good to hear. You know, the NBC was actually giving you guys a fair shake. I, I wasn't really expecting that, to be honest. I mean, um, from what I could tell, I only watched the first episode, and it sounds like there's more out, uh, which I couldn't find. Uh, it's all eleven now. Yeah, the, the whole all eleven. Okay. Uh, well, Google wasn't doing a very good job of showing me that, but uh, nonetheless, that that's great to hear. And I guess I uh, frame that as some of the normies because it didn't seem like, yeah, there was that Zandra Rice Hawkins woman from the Granite state progress uh, organization, but then it seemed like there was just some, like maybe every average people who were on the street that just maybe got caught up in the, the questioning about some of the free state project antics and uh, the people involved. So, you know, my apologies if I got that incorrect, that was just my interpretation, but Uh, Can you tell us maybe more about Xandra Rice Hawkins and uh, what she does with her Free State Project watch? I mean, from what I could tell, it it seems like she yeah, is just kind of ignorant, like she is more or less kind of captivated by the boogeyman perspective, I guess, or like the boogeyman of what Free State Project actually is and doesn't really have like a good understanding of maybe the principles behind it. Uh, Have you had any run ins with her personally or do you do you know much about what she's
2: trying to do with that? I have not met her personally, I don't think, and I don't know much about her or pay much attention to her, and I don't think anyone does, to be honest. Um, she she runs uh, Granite State Progress, I think, and, and Free State Watch or whatever, and tries to like investigate and see which political people, like elected representatives, are free staters, and there are like three or four dozen in the state house right now who are free staters. But um, she's like stressing herself out, trying to find out where the free staters are and root us out and expose us and that's it's pretty sad that she's stressing herself out for that but I don't think i would be as nice as you are saying she's ignorant i think she knows about liberty and she is a a real devoted communist authoritarian and i think gsp her organization I, I believe there's some speculation out there with some evidence that they get money from Soros directly because he does donate to a lot of left-wing causes um so you know there's money for for her and her ilk to be full-time activists against liberty which is fine because they're having so little success it's really it's, it's pathetic it's It's like not, they don't understand that, what they are ignorant of is they don't understand the concept of decentralization like you and I do. They don't understand, they think that it's very top-down monolithic, the Free State Project boss, you know, Jason Sorens or Carla Garrick or whoever they think the boss is, gives us all orders and we all do those marching orders. They really don't understand the nature of decentralization, guerrilla warfare, and how we have like a thousand sub-movements within the liberty movement in New Hampshire. And that's why they can't defeat us because even if they take out like Jason Sorens or Ian Freeman, the movement will keep going because there are thousands of other leaders and activists just doing what they do in a decentralized manner. And they don't get, they don't understand that concept.
1: Well, I want to know is who came up with the idea to put a gun free zone (laughs) at the freedom festival, like one of the largest libertarian, uh, you know, festival or like gatherings in the, on the planet that, so that leadership somehow came up with the idea to, create a gun-free zone or was that part of like rfk security detail like he
2: wouldn't come yeah yeah RFK? that was very controversial and that was um until the the um nudity gate that was like the biggest controversy uh going to pork fest and during <laughs> port fest gate what's that oh we'll, we'll get to that some people are, are nudists and you know if, if they leave their nudist uh... area people uh get upset and there's a lot of controversy now that's the biggest controversy right now in the liberty movement we're all arguing about it and spending of energy fighting each other on that one issue even though we agree on everything else instead of fighting the real enemies like Sandra Rice Hawkins. So I think with RFK um, pretty much the organizers essentially said they're very hands-off and they you know allow people to court whoever they want and some a few libertarians courted you know through um, Dennis Kucinich I think relationships with him people courted um, RFK and his condition was no guns in that area he's speaking for that time and you know because of him in a security detail and, and the organizers at some point did okay that, which, which I don't really agree with, but they, they said, okay, RFK is such a big draw, he'll, you know, make a lot of people want to come and help the FSP um, publicity. And so they were okay with that. I wasn't really a big fan. Some people, a lot of people came to see him. They had metal detectors for the guns and everything, and still there were lines of like you know a few hundred or a thousand people. So the lines were across the whole campground. So people came to see him. I don't know if it was libertarians or other medical freedom people who are not necessarily libertarian from New Hampshire sure who came just to see him. So he definitely was a draw, we know that, but I'm not totally okay with um compromising liberty principles, especially with the gun free zone, just to get a big name on the stage, because I think I asked the organizer if if we could get Bernie Sanders, would you get him? Because he would bring a lot of people. And I'm not sure what he said. I think he said, yeah, if we'll get a lot of people, but you know, so it's an interesting question of of how much would he compromise the principles, but um, I think the big overarching point is it's not that big a deal. Some people said if RFK is there, him and his other suits and his, you know, security detail and gun-free zone in that tiny area of Porkfest, which is like a few acres, it's like, I don't know, 10, 15, 20, 50 acres. It's a big campground. Um, and that one tiny tent where, you know, the small tent where they were uh, speaking, it wouldn't ruin Porkfest. And that's what I thought. And I was right. Like it's two and a half, three thousand 3000 people. It's thousands of events. It's a few hundred different hubs of activity, um, different vendors and activities like, it would take a lot more than one guy and his security detail to ruin Porkfest. If there were 100 candidates for president and 5,000 Secret Service agents, that would really ruin the vibe. But one group of people in suits, you just can't ruin the vibe of Porkfest that easily. And I was right. Like most people, like they were worrying about a million other stuff, selling their wares and buying food and partying and, and you know, hanging out with people and doing their other fun stuff. There were thousands of events. So most people didn't, you know, really care about RFK, didn't um, ruin it one way or another for them
0: yeah I, I could see that I, I agree with you as well i don't know if our principles should be compromised just for a, a big named uh speaker you know so but you, to to be fair you know i guess if anybody is to be paranoid about guns and assassination like rfk jr kind of has mm-hmm. <laughs> a little bit of a reason to be you know considering um his uncle and his father were, were both killed by uh, assassination but uh speaking of you know guns, gun control. Um, Your most recent book was just published on June 1st, entitled The Pocket Guide to Killing Gun Control. It's about 94 pages, has great ratings so far. And um, from what I saw in the sample, it provides ammo to push back against the the pro-gun control platitudes that the media shoves down our throat. So can you tell us about this book and what inspired you to write it?
2: Yeah, sure. Well, what inspired me is I'm more than maybe anything, I'm a, a gun rights activist. I'm a voluntarist and I'm very passionate about a lot of issues from taxes to peace to privacy to due process, economic freedom, education freedom. But gun freedom is it's at the top or tied to the top of my priorities. I think it's one of the most important natural negative rights that humans have. And and all animals and a lot of plants have a natural right to self-defense. So um what the book came from and the reason I finally wrote it is I wrote an article a long time ago, like a year or two ago, and I gave a speech at Porkfest last year um, about the the three different approaches to arguing against gun control. We've all seen online and in person people arguing for gun control and they use a few different ways. They talk about um, people dying and it's emotional arguments and they talk about the constitution saying the second amendment, I'm sure you're all familiar with the second amendment, it says the right to keep their arms shall be regulated by the government and shall only be allowed to the people as prescribed by the politicians in accordance with safety, right? That's what the Second Amendment says? <laughs> um, yeah, I think, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, so you know, we've all heard a lot of the arguments. So in, in my article, and then I made it into a whole book, Um, I go through all the different ways to argue against gun control. I think um one of them is the Constitution. So the Second Amendment, obviously it says, shall not be infringed. There are no exceptions in there. And I use um a lot of the quotes from the Founding Fathers, including the authors of the Second Amendment, Um, So pretty much all the Founding Fathers, there are a whole lot of quotes sourced, you know, in the book about how they made it very clear just for the authoritarians who can't understand the Second Amendment, which is pretty simple. It makes it very clear that they wanted no gun laws at all. And every single weapon that exists that the, you know, or that the government has should be available to the people. So it's, you know, and and that it's meant to deter tyranny, not for hunting, not for sport. It's meant for tyrants to defend yourself. Um, So I use that. And I also explain in the Second Amendment, there's no exception. It says should not be infringed and the founders were not stupid they understood exceptions because the uh fourth amendment fifth and i believe a few other amendments have and the seventh amendment i believe have exceptions um so they understand that some amendments have exceptions they say except for a probable cause except for a warrant except after a conviction um so so they have they could have put exceptions in the second amendment for safety or for you know big weapons or for felons or minors but they don't so the second amendment really says everyone can have guns any gun they want including felons including minors including crazy people that is what the Second Amendment says, and you can't argue against it. So I don't care about case law. I don't care about Supreme courts. I don't care about um, uh, D.C. versus Heller, McDonald, Chicago, Brewer. I don't care if they're good or bad cases. They're nine black politicians in robes, and a majority of them is just five, and I don't care what they say anyway. I don't care if a million black robes men said that the Second Amendment doesn't give you absolute gun rights. So but that's the first argument, and that's actually the weakest of the three arguments. The second argument I go through in the book is the natural rights, and that's the, the strongest argument. The most powerful one is all humans and all organisms essentially have certain natural negative rights. We have a right to, you know, not be aggressed upon and not be violated. That's what makes it a negative right. As and I explained, positive rights are things that are given to you by the government, which necessarily must be taken first. You know, the government taxes people and gives money to you, and that's an entitlement, that's a positive right, and that's a BS right. Whereas negative rights, all in order for my negative right to be observed and not violated, all it takes is inaction as opposed to action. So my right to free speech or my right to self-defense is a negative right, because you can observe it very easily by doing nothing. Um, so like sometimes in medicine, we say do nothing um, as opposed to like trying to fix a patient and you hurt him more. Sometimes doing nothing is you know the best thing. So that's and that's the best argument I go through, the natural rights. And there are two natural rights here, actually. There's the right to self-defense and there's the right to property. And like right now, I'm carrying a pistol. I have a right to own property. Pistol's are property. I don't care if it's made of you know polymer and steel, just like my property, my computer, my car, my shirt, they're all my property. I don't care if it's made of steel and polymer. doesn't matter if it's a tool that can fire a fast projectile, it is property. So I have a natural right to own property, it's a negative right, and I have a natural right to self-defense. So the two natural rights are involved in, in uh, gun rights. And the third argument, which I think is also pretty good, is the practical application of gun laws don't work. If you look at – and I, I go through a lot of the stats in the book. If you look at all the places with the strictest gun control by city, by state, by country, however you do it in the world, um, gun control has a almost perfect correlation with overall more gun control, more homicide, more gun violence, more murder, more violent crime, um, and overall worse quality of life. So I go through that as well. I think that's a decent argument, but we have to be careful not to lead with that argument. It's, it's not the best. It's either second or third best argument because, as someone was saying the other day, if gun control did work, then would you support it? And I would say, I still would not, even if gun control actually made New York City and Chicago and Baltimore safe, I still would not support it because it violates natural rights. So those are the three I go through. And then the last part of the book, which is probably like half of the actual text, is like 25 appendices, where I just go through explaining to people who know nothing about guns how to um, get a gun, the best way to shop for a gun, buy, carry, store, ammo train all that stuff how ballistics works how basics of guns work and a whole lot of other information that's good for people who are starting out or intermediates with shooting
1: hell yeah man yeah, it sounds like you're pretty passionate about uh about that i am too yeah, right because as john locke stated i mean the right to self-defense is the right from which all other rights are derived it's the first law of nature right that like they each person owns their own their own body and their own life and, and no one has the right to hinder that
0: well. Those are certainly three very strong points. All three, I I agree with wholeheartedly. Uh, It's hard to to be principled and logically consistent and not agree with those. Uh, If anybody who's listening to this is still not quite, I I know Alu gave a little bit of an explanation there as to positive and negative rights, but if you're still not quite aware or understanding of what that is, what that consists of, we did a wonderful podcast with Mark Passio about about a month ago now, and he broke it down in detail. So I'll point you guys to that podcast, definitely download that, check that out. You know, just to play devil's advocate here, obviously, you know, I'm a libertarian anarchist, voluntarist, but unfortunately, we live in a world where most of the people who surround us aren't necessarily in the same camp with us as far as their intellectual prowess. And I don't mean to say that to toot my own horn or to, you know, inflate my own ego. I just say that because unfortunately, most people are emotionally driven, right? Most people uh, succumb to these appeals to emotion arguments that are usually platitudes and, and sophistry presented by the the mainstream media and uh, politicians and the, the corporate world, of course. So, I mean, if that's the case, all three of those examples you just gave are, are very you know, they're spot on. And as far as my assessment, you know, they're, they're logically correct, but how would you appeal to the people who don't maybe necessarily resonate with logic? And do you believe that your, your book, the pocket guide to killing gun control maybe could break through uh, some of those mental barriers?
2: Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And I think the emotional argument is is one of the most important thing because humans are emotional, especially certain kinds of humans, and they don't care about the constitution or the facts or the principles of natural rights. Right. And that's why in the book, part 3A is actually the emotional argument. And I explain to people very simply, listen, if you're debating someone who's very emotional and they don't care about the other three arguments, 3A, because it's it's one of the practical arguments, and you can use the practical application of statistics of if you are in Baltimore, New York City, Chicago, LA, uh, New Orleans, you're more likely to be killed per capita by, by someone with a gun because they violate the laws because criminals don't follow laws than you are in New Hampshire, which has no gun laws. Same with Wyoming, no gun laws among the freest, among the safest states. Vermont, Maine, no gun laws. They're the top, tied for number one or two safest states. So the emotional argument, and I give a few examples, I could probably find better ones if I really rack my brains or do research, but just from friends and family, my mother, my father, my, my brother's uh, ex-girlfriend, like people who, who didn't have guns and were threatened and could have been killed, or people who were killed, or people who had guns, like a tiny woman who protected herself and her kids with a gun against a few armed male assailants, and they would have killed her if she didn't have a gun. So using the emotional arguments, I can, you know, and, and from the next edition of the book, I'll probably put in some more, uh, even better, more emotional examples of how people who had a firearm saved their lives, And if you don't support firearms, then you want those poor old ladies to die. Because me, I'll I'll be decently okay. I'm 30 years old. I'm a male. I'm actually a powerlifter and a fighter, a a boxer. And um, I can run fast. You know, I played receiver in high school. I can run fast. I can run away or I can fight my way out of something, maybe. And I'm not that much of a target because I'm a dude. Um, Whereas, so if if you take away guns, I'll be more okay than my wife, who is a very tiny girl who looks like she's like 17. So she's more of a target and she can't run as fast, especially now that she just had a baby. So she can't run away, can't fight as well as I can. Um, And so if you don't want her to have a gun, if you take away firearms from law-abiding citizens, then you're hurting people like my wife and her parents who are both um, elderly post-cancer immigrants who can't fight very well anymore because they're in their 70s. Um, If you take away guns, you're making it harder for them to survive if they're attacked. If my parents or my my wife's parents, my in-laws are attacked, if they don't have a gun, they probably have zero chance of surviving. They'll die. Whereas me, if I'm attacked, I could run away or fight. So so really, if you take away guns from law-abiding citizens, you're hurting the most vulnerable. You know, the most old and sick, and and women and weak and kids. You're hurting them if you take away guns. So that's the emotional argument. So I do touch on that in the book a little bit.
0: Perfect. Yeah, that's exactly yeah the answer I was hoping for, and that gives a little bit more context. And I, yeah, I think people could understand that. That that's a perspective that I don't think that anybody could disagree with. Self-defense is a natural right. I think we all understand that. Well, I um. Also wanted to, to talk about some of your other books here. I know, as I mentioned, you know, earlier in the show, you've you've released a lot, man. And it's it's certainly impressive. Uh you released one book uh in early May of this year entitled The Plague That Must Not Be Questioned: How Politicians Use a Virus to Eliminate Privacy, Enrich Themselves, and Put The Final Nail in Liberty's Coffin. And uh obviously this book is about the the COVID pandemic. Uh, it looks like it was updated from an earlier version that was published in 2021. And I'm sure as a paramedic and EMT, uh, you might have some kind of insider insight, some interesting perspective on how you saw the COVID preventative measures playing out. Boy, I guess it was probably back in like May. We actually had the author Jeffrey Hahn on our show to talk about his book, uh, COVID-19 short path to you'll own nothing and you'll be happy. Welcome to the new age of tyranny. And I wanted to ask you the same question I asked him, which is, what was the most bombshell revelation or disturbing fact that comes to mind that you found while researching for this COVID book?
2: Oh my God, there's so much. I think in the book, so yeah, having experienced like 12 years' experience in emergency medicine, gives me a perspective that that not all the authors of books about corona fascism have. And, the reason I wrote it—I don't like reinventing the wheel. The reason I wrote it is there were none back in like 2021. There were zero, and the only one I knew of was the first of Alex Berenson's short booklets. Other than that, there were no books sure. in the world. So I thought I was, you know, one of the first, and that's why I wrote it because I wanted people. You no, know, I was trying to blow the whistle on the fact that the scandemic was really exaggerated by by a tremendous amount. Now, the reason I, I'll say sometimes it might have been exact—the deaths might have been exaggerated or overcounted by any factor of a hundred or maybe a thousand or or technically with what they were doing, they could have inflated it by a millionfold. And I explain how in the book. I think the the biggest revelations were were in the overcounting. I could talk about the vaccine all day. How you know that was not safe or effective like they, they promised it was. Meaning um, the elites, Pfizer, Moderna, FDA probably all lied, which is you know only one of the biggest crimes ever in humanity: lying, saying it's 100 safe and effective. Um, but I think the biggest revelation that doesn't get enough attention is the overcounting. So th- they use three different mechanisms to overcount the deaths and scare us all and have you know. All the TV stations had the, the constant death count on the screen and so millions and the Johns Hopkins website, they made it to a corona fascism, paranoia, um, propaganda. So I think the, the ways they overcounted were three tremendous things that each of which could have accounted for whatever thousands folds of overcounting of deaths. So um, the first was the PCR test was um, it amplifies every, the sample, you take a sample, amplifies it and it makes it so big that eventually you might see there's positive result for a certain virus. So um, some people say it can't even specify the coronavirus versus other viruses. I don't know. But but it was the creators of it, and, and it's pretty public knowledge, that it was meant to be amplified 20 to 25 cycles. And they were doing it 40 to 45 times. They were amplifying it. And that creates so many positive um, false negatives or false positives that it could be overcounting. But I don't know. But it could be 99% uh, you know, overcounting. I just don't know. And there have to be studies on it, but of course the elites don't want studies. So just that alone could mean that maybe there were really, you know, for every five deaths that really were caused by COVID, um, they were overcounting it as you know um, five hundred thousand. I just don't know. So that's speculation, but but it was overcounting tremendously. But that's nothing compared to what they did with the um, money. They were give the the CMS, the Centers for Medicaid and Medicare Services, the federal government, which is the primary payer for I believe most Americans. That's the insurance that their primary insurance healthcare. Um, they were paying extra, you know, 7,000 here, 13,000 there, uh, 19,000 there, whatever, but extra whenever there was a diagnosis and admission and ventilator use and death, if it was related to COVID. So a few issues here is number one, it's the incentives are messed up because now you're more likely if I tell you I'll give you $7,000 every time you write COVID on a uh, diagnosis or admission report, then you're more likely to do it, obviously to get more money. But also, um, they were, they were fudging the numbers with, um, going from primary reason for admission or ventilator or the death, the primary cause of death to any um, factor that was that was involved or related to it. So if someone, and again, being a medicine, I, I can tell you and, and everyone understands, most people don't have this one issue, especially very sick patients in the ICU. They have sepsis caused by an infection, which also caused pneumonia, which also caused some kidney failure, pre-renal failure because they're dehydrated and so many other issues and cognitive issues and they have an ulcer and that's infected. So they have 15 issues. So if COVID is one of them and the virus, you know, their their immune system is depressed because any any uh, disease will, will depress the immune system. And a lot of stuff, other stuff could depress it. And then you're more likely to get any other virus, including coronavirus. So that could be one of a conglomeration of factors. And what they were doing with death certificates, and I think the admissions and everything, was saying if you have COVID, if you're COVID positive on the faulty PCR tests, then we're going to call it COVID and we're going to give you the money and pump up the numbers. But here's the worst thing about it. And, and that also could have inflated the numbers by, I don't know, a tremendous factor. Now the worst thing that inflated the numbers by infinity and made it so that every single person in the universe could be counted as a COVID case was using the symptom list. What they did was they they had a list of symptoms, you know, uh, cough, fever, whatever, rapid heart rate, breathing issues, confusion, weakness. And that list kept growing and becoming more general. And th- that was the list of symptoms that could be COVID, which I would agree with. Medically, yes, if you have a virus that's systemic or primarily in the lungs, you can have weakness, difficulty breathing, cough, rapid heart rate, fever, all that stuff. The problem is they're so general, as I'm sure everyone knows listening, a fever and weakness and tiredness and nausea and a cough can be from a million causes. So saying that if you have any of those symptoms, we're gonna consider it a 100% confirmed COVID case, which is what they were doing. If you had any symptom in the universe and people in hospitals, I would say probably 100% of people in hospitals have either a rapid or slow heart rate, a rapid or slow breathing, or a, a high or low temperature, or difficulty breathing, or nausea, or weakness. Everyone in the hospital has at least one of those. Every single human in every hospital ever, I believe, has at least one of those things. Um, at some point in the hospital, your heart rate goes above 100, which is technically a rapid heart rate tachycardia. So they were saying, if you have any of these symptoms, we don't even need to do a test. We're going to say you have COVID, or 100% sure you have COVID, and we're going to count that admission, ventilator use, and death as a COVID death. And that, once that was happening, I realized, you know, this is such a scandemic that, you know, any shred of of trust I had or faith in the system or the numbers went away at that point because they could have been overcounting essentially infinite patients. They can call every patient in every hospital in the world a COVID patient using that criteria.
0: Sure, and it's it's really hard to imagine it was all a coincidence, right? It's really hard to imagine it was all just a, a big coincidence. And I think many of us kind of had our spidey sense kind of tingle in, in the very beginning days, right? Like we all kind of suspected they were inflating numbers and uh, I mean, according to what you're saying, it really it really sounds like they were. It certainly doesn't surprise me. Uh, the whole world is a stage, as you know, and um, you know one of the the main uh, motivators is always fear. So obviously they had to kind of play up the fear factor in all this and manipulate the numbers, manipulate the way that they are actually even counting numbers. Uh, not to mention. Like I think it was like the drunk driver who uh killed in the auto accident, and they they still classified it as like a COVID death. And I, I mean, there's so much related to the number counting that seemed fishy that I think anybody with half a brain probably realized that there was something going on here. And I think all this kind of speaks to the problem with the top-down authoritarian structure and infrastructure that we've more or less normalized in this country, right? Because, I mean, we can't suspect that every single person was in on this. But because most people naturally yield to authority figures, naturally yield to, quote, experts, then they're just going to go along to get along. They're just going to go ahead and promote the status quo, not question any of this stuff. And I think that's what really contributed to this level of atrocity that you know we saw play out no, I mean that's what we saw happen, dude. The centralized authority
1: kind of ran roughshod over the entire world and ruined a lot of people, you know, especially children and the poor and small business. It was uh pretty terrible.
2: Yeah, and with corona fascism especially, it, the reason that a lot of people bought in, including me, who was a voluntarist, who didn't believe in the government, was skeptical of everyone in DC, um even I for the first few months thought that if the FDA, the NIH, you know, um all the top doctors you know i personally followed um all were saying this then clearly it must be you know somewhat legit so it took me you know the first few weeks till january february i was starting to get a bit fishy then by by march april probably of 2020 i was saying this is probably bs um but even for me in the beginning i had a little trust and i and i hate myself for that because i had some trust in big medicine because I thought I couldn't trust anyone in DC except the FDA, the NIH, they probably at least have some doctors with a brain and some principles. I was wrong. And I'm a big idiot for that. I made a big mistake. So even me, who is the self-proclaimed smartest, most voluntarious, skeptical, amazing person who's open-minded, even I essentially fell for it for the first few weeks or months because it was under the guise of medicine. So now the next time they say under the guise of medicine, we have to like do lockdowns for global warming or the next big virus i'm not going to be that uh, gullible anymore but it's an interesting you know observation that that even i who who you know i follow this stuff i'm skeptical i've written i've written a few articles about the fda being corrupt scum so i, I know that but i thought that if all of the doctors you know the big establishment elites and the big doctors and JAMA, um you know the the aap all of the big journals uh, lancet everything was saying covid is the worst thing ever then there might be some truth to it so even i made a big mistake and and because it was they used medicine to get in the back door they didn't say "alu believe the elites believe the big media propaganda they they snuck in the back door by saying it was based on medicine and that's a good cautionary tale i think for everyone including myself
1: certainly and there was a lot of fears associated with that too which is a big driver of uh mm-hmm. irrational thought processes you know like that's what dr uh malone said about you know had the the mass formation psychosis and I mean that was a real thing it still is people are still wearing masks in their car by themselves or walking by themselves outside with a mask on and so i mean you did it right dude it wasn't like you you know, you were you were cheering for vaccine passports <laughs> you know and mandatory jabs like that's what you're supposed to do you're not supposed to immediately dismiss everything that comes at you you're supposed to remain skeptical and and go along with it i think you know you did a good job with that so i don't think you should blame yourself like for for going along we i was I remember at the beginning of that, we were I, I was telling everybody to stay inside because, there, you know, it's a pandemic. No one knew what it was. And certainly the authoritarians and the, the tyrant class uh, exploited that for personal gain. And now the next time, if we actually do get into a a real pandemic that uh, that, you know, that's super deadly and hurts a lot of people, I think that it, it could it could backfire. And, the pe- you know, people might not take any precautions that come down from the, from the higher-ups because it, they're, they're not gonna believe them. And that's a dangerous situation to be in. That's a brilliant
2: point that I'd never realized until now when the authoritarians, if they do want to wipe out, especially the the um, non-compliant kind of people like us, <laughs> you know, they, they'll unleash a virus and they, they'll even say, you know, take precautions and we'll disregard them because we don't trust them anymore. <laughs> and we'll get wiped out. <laughs> that's a pretty brilliant point. Maybe that was one of their thoughts. I think when people ask about the um, motive, and I have a whole chapter in the book about the motive, um, I think the big reason they did the scandemic, um, you know, because we know it's from a lab. Now they, they were doing it. They released it. I don't know if it was a mistake or not, but they, the US government with taxpayer money, you and I were paying for the Wuhan lab in association with the NIH um, in China. It was in the lab. They were studying it, um, whether it was released on purpose or not, whatever. But um, I think the big reason they did the whole scandemic for a few years was they made a lot of money. They put out small businesses, them and their big shareholders. I wrote in the book, like they made you know billions and stuff. But I think the bigger thing was it was a test run to see just how far they could push authoritarianism and eliminate liberty and privacy and natural rights um, and do the great reset, like our, like our friend Klaus Schwab has been saying for a while. Um, it was a kind of a test run to see can we really lock down millions? And I think overall it was mostly successful. They locked down the world for like you know a year or two and they shut down businesses, biggest economic crash in history of existence, the, as far as the stock market crashes in 2020. So they were mostly successful. There was very there was less resistance and pushback than I would have thought. There was some, but but probably less than we all thought. So I think it was a big test run.
1: Certainly.
0: Yeah, well, I think uh I was just about to look up the source, but I I, I did check a couple of weeks ago. 5.5 billion people worldwide got the right. vaccine. So I guess in some ways uh that that was successful. And I think the silver lining here is that the skepticism has shifted. And and maybe as Matt said, you know, maybe it's shifted so far that people have zero trust in government. And maybe if there is some type of huge pandemic in the future, like nobody just, nobody's going to comply, which, you know, I could understand at this point, but I, I think the skepticism has shifted so far that most people are going to question this stuff and they're going to con, question any future, whether it be false flags or, you know, any type of huge world event in this manner. And as I said before, you know, the whole world is a stage. So uh, at this day and age, you know, with the internet, we have the ability to examine and look at the details and, and research some of the counter perspectives on things. So it's up to us to kind of really dissect it and look and figure out what what's going on and what really happened. Uh, speaking of which, you um, are the founder, the owner, and editor of chief of Liberty Block, which uh, is your organization and your website. Now, I know the website has articles, podcasts, news. Uh, it looks like you could even buy precious metals and, and silver on there. Um, but I, I don't really have like a, a good understanding or good grasp of what it's trying to accomplish. So what, what are you doing with uh, Liberty Block and what was the impetus behind starting it?
2: Yeah, so it started in 2017. And um, just to clarify that the gold and precious metals were, were affiliated with the local Silver Mint. It's another free stater who has a decent sized mint operation in a store in Ware, New Hampshire. And he sells silver and gold that he makes. Um, and we have an affiliate with Defy the Grid, another gold precious metals dealer in Utah. Well, I, I personally don't sell anything on this site. I'm just affiliated with them because they're, they're great friends and they're great people. And I believe in sound money. Um, 2017 was started, uh, uh, Liberty Block was started in 2017. And it was a radio show. I was actually on talk radio on, on AM radio. In Southwest Connecticut, Greenwich, by by New York, um, for a while, and and I created the site to host the audio so people could listen if they couldn't listen live to the show. Um, and then I started writing articles about New York City and de Blasio and Cuomo. Um, and then I, when I moved here in late 2017, I I kept the podcast going because so I wasn't on the radio anymore, and I kept the articles going writing about New Hampshire. So it was created. I didn't want to make another one of the million blogs and podcasts out there, but it was created because I happened to have the amazing opportunity to get into a radio studio and and I wanted to host the audio somewhere, and I supplemented that with articles, and I realized that's when I fell in love with writing. I never wrote much, was never good at writing, and late 2017, when I was writing a few articles a week to supplement the weekly show on the website, I started writing more, and just got better, and started falling in love with writing, and now I identify, um, first and foremost, as an author very often, because now now writing is like my living. Um, So on libertyblock.com, I've written like four or 500 articles since 2017. So I moved to New Hampshire, and now I focus, again, I've given up on the union. I'm a big secessionist. uh, the self-identified biggest pro-secession activist in the world. Um, I, I believe that's the only solution is is leaving the crumbling union. Union. Um, so Liberty Block, I focus on just New Hampshire pretty much. If people write op-eds about other stuff, that's fine. But when I write, it's pretty much mostly New Hampshire. I'm not trying to save the world. I don't think Biden or DeSantis or Trump's going to save the world. So um, I focus just New Hampshire. And it's, it's kind of half topical stuff like New Hampshire bills that are good or bad bills I write about or news in New Hampshire. And it's kind of like half either international or national stuff or philosophical stuff about rights um so that's kind of what i do with liberty block and we have a podcast that thankfully my father and a few other brilliant co-hosts have taken over the mantle of really running the podcast side of liberty block uh on wednesday evenings they they record that show and they go about they talk about news from all over because they're from from north carolina to new york to florida so they're from all over and they talk about their analysis of the news and they're usually about six months to a year ahead of like the others like bongino and mark levin (laughs) and the others so like they really are ahead of the game and they're brilliant brilliant people from lawyers to you know big federal contractors and international um experts and stuff so it's, a, it's an awesome podcast everyone should listen to it. and i listen to it because i'm almost never on it because i'm busy and they do a great job they have five six hosts it's already full i listen to it and it's like a phenomenal super high level podcast i got to slow it down and like to to regular speed instead of speeding it up like most podcasts so that's a podcast <laughs> and then we have you know the Liberty Block. So it's mostly articles and podcasts. That's the two sides, the two divisions within Liberty Block, I believe. And then on my own, I write the books and I do some other stuff on my own.
0: Sure. Well, that that's a great explanation. And uh man, that's so awesome. You're you're doing this with your dad, or at least he has a part in all this as well. And God, that that's a that's pretty amazing. And six hundred articles, like that's equally impressive. Uh gosh, I don't know where I've been or how I haven't seen I know, right? <laughs> so my apologies.
2: Or you've been busy writing your own hundreds or a few thousand articles on free thought project there is some truth to that
0: yeah there is some truth in fact most of the time uh, i'm so busy with the social media side of things i don't even get a chance to read all of our articles so uh, that's just the way it goes when you're in this world Um, but i I do have a couple more questions i know we're starting to Get squeezed here on time a little bit, but I did want to fit in these these two questions uh, because I feel like they're important. So shifting gears just a little bit here, you know, I was thrilled to see that one of the books that you've written is called "Presumed Guilty: How DC Politicians Destroyed Due Process and How We Can Restore It." And this seems like a very important book at this current point in time because. As you pointed out in the Amazon bio of the book, you know, civic lessons that we learned as kids in these public indoctrination camps, you know, government schools are actually far from what we know as reality. And in most cases, um, we the people are actually guilty until proven innocent. I can't tell you how many times I've seen videos of police naturally assuming that uh, the driver of a vehicle or a person being questioned was guilty of something, you know, while the while the cop is violating their rights. Uh, in the name of officer safety, right? So uh, then if we wanted a bigger example, just to zoom out, you know, we could also make the case that the government spying on American citizens is not only illegal and unconstitutional, but it also does the same by assuming all Americans are guilty until proven innocent. uh, And therefore, or, you know, it's okay to violate our privacy, read our emails, spy on our social media posts, and a lot of times much worse than that. So Can you explain how government systemically abuses its power in this way and how the justice system is currently severely flawed?
2: Yes. So I I do have a chapter about the broad surveillance, which violates the process, violates the Fourth Amendment. And I have a chapter about traffic law and another chapter about police and accountability and um, police brutality and how they're not really held accountable in criminal or civil uh, arenas. So, yeah, I mean, the the book has, it was going to be like five chapters. And when I started writing it, it took me like a year. So like a year or two years ago, I started writing it. I thought there were like five or six areas where due process is violated. So for those listening who aren't like totally familiar, due process is the concept that we're presumed innocent. Um, it's a natural right. It's a constitutional right, very um, strongly uh, supported and supposed to be protected by the Constitution. Um, by the Fourth Amendment, Fifth Amendment. And so we're supposed to be presumed guilty, at, presumed innocent until proven guilty in a court with a fair trial and a right to defend ourselves and a jury of our peers and I'm uh, not punished until we are convicted. So even if someone saw me shoot someone, technically the government can't punish me until I'm convicted. So if that trial takes a few weeks to, to come to an end, I cannot be punished by the government in any way until until I am convicted by a jury. So even if people think I'm totally guilty and evil and all that, and there was evidence, it doesn't matter, until I'm convicted. So th- that's the premise of due process in the book. And throughout doing research for the book and writing it, I realized there aren't like five areas. There are like 26 different areas of the law systemically wow. in the United States where due process is violated. Like we're presumed guilty, we're punished, and then they worry about the actual conviction. Um, so so yeah, and I, I go through the the basics of civil asset forfeiture, eminent domain, um, the surveillance and the warrants, and how both being broad, um, they're both supposed to be specific. Broad warrants and broad surveillance violated the constitution and natural rights. But um, tons of other chapters in there of kind of specific cases. There's one on January 6th, because that was a unique kind of case where it violated a few different areas of, of due process. Um, I have a chapter on victimless crimes, um, where I, I think I referenced Derek Day's Victimless crimes free and Keen and some of the stuff they've done in the Keen activism. Um, so the whole chapter on if there's no victim, it's not really a crime, meaning if you punish them, you're violating due process, in my opinion. Um, so that's more of a broad kind of um, definition of due process, but I think victimless crimes you know, should not be crimes. So, so yeah, a total of 28 chapters with the beginning and end, so 26 different areas of law I examine um, going through a lot of the stuff from Operation Choke Point, government, you know, deputizing other semi-private companies like banks to do their dirty work for them, and I have a whole u- big chapter on Title IX and colleges and how colleges have their own justice system, almost like the military has its own justice system that violates due process as well, and how Title IX actually is an interesting cautionary tale of how um, there are a lot of examples of how the government can use things so broad, like I said, with the threat of fascism, how they can use things so broad in Title IX. I explained the the legal concept. That courts have used with Title IX for federal laws to say, you know, I can't explain it all here and it's too complicated and I don't want to give it away. But such broad things that if anyone's ever uncomfortable ever, um, based on any statistics, even if it's true, it doesn't matter. If anyone's ever uncomfortable, there's a violation of federal civil rights, as per like uh uh section 1984 or whatever of the federal government's laws. Um, and then there's a violation, and then you could be held liable. So if anyone's ever uncomfortable, and they, they use title line for that. So a lot of due process violations from you know criminal, to civil, to administrative, to colleges, to other stuff, operation choke point, federal, local, state. Um, and in the last chapter, I explain throughout You know, every chapter, I kind of explained some of the solutions for that area, um, and in the final chapter, I have a, a big solution. Um, and I realized by the end of the book, almost all of the violations are federal or supported by the federal government or um, supported or okayed by the federal courts and Supreme Court. So if we secede, we will fix almost every issue of the book by just by doing that one thing, just by secession. So, it's probably the easiest fix to all those issues because fixing them individually, like abolishing qualified immunity and civil asset for forfeiture and eminent domain, is actually impossible. And secession is nearly impossible. And secession fixes all the issues, whereas fixing just asset forfeiture is impossible and would only fix one of the issues.
0: So, speaking of solutions and reform, uh, you actually shared with me this morning a new project that you've been working on that needs uh, a little love and support, I guess you could say. Uh, You share with me a link to a Google spreadsheet that documents crimes by law enforcement employees. Um, So, you know, we could have all that information in one place. Uh, Naturally, you would think and assume, you know, something like that would be under the federal government's uh, purview and they would be tracking that. Um, But if you understand government like we do, and if you think about it even a little bit, it makes perfect sense why they don't want to have statistics like this readily available uh, online for the public, because I think ultimately it would erode trust and respect for law enforcement officers and uh, the institution as a whole. I know Patrick Smith from Texas who hosts Anarchast and Disenthrall has also been working on a database that he currently has the, the web infrastructure for. I know he's trying to find partners to collaborate on that project. So maybe that's something to look into But I know that you mentioned that this new endeavor could certainly use some monetary help with crowdfunding. But please go ahead and share exactly what it is you're working on uh, to hold cops more accountable.
2: Yeah, I think more than money. I think I just need crowdsourcing of people um, to help open all boxes for this project. Um, I started the spreadsheet a long time ago and I realized like there are a lot of cops who commit heinous things, you know, from murder to rape to, to other big crimes and and almost never are held accountable. Um, it's very very rare for a conviction or even a film to be fired. Usually, they get some paid vacation and then they're back to work. In the worst in the worst of those scenarios, they'll transfer to a, another um, neighboring department and keep working as cops. Um, and I wanted their names out there. One of the few things we could do as citizens to take it into our own hands is get their names out there. Um, so I started this project a while ago, but I got back to it a few a few weeks ago, and I realized if we can like document in one in one place using crowdsourcing, where it, it can you know be, be filled in with thousands of bad cops in a matter of days, then we can hold them accountable by at least knowing their names. So when this cop is hired by your local department, you can go to your police chief or your town council and tell them, Hey, he murdered someone. And here's the video. Here's, here's all the evidence. Um, And here are some articles that were in the news, but it was a few years ago and now it's died down. So maybe we should not hire him. So I think, and just publicly shaming and publicly knowing about it, I think is a really good thing. It's kind of all we can do. We can't really hold tribunals on ourselves. We can't, assemble a grand jury on our own and convict him again unfortunately i don't think so I, that's that's what i'm doing and I, I wrote an article to try to promote the spreadsheet a few days ago um and i'm just trying to share it with everyone i'm debating how how open to make it um whether i should give everyone who has the link um the the authority to edit it or comment or view it whatever but if people email me and say they're, they support liberty and police accountability um and i think i could trust them i'll give them editing Um, abilities for the spreadsheet to add onto it, because I put in a few dozen, I think, scenarios with the name of the cop, the name of the victim, um, like an article or video linking to the story, so there's a link there, and um, some other information, the department, the area, the the year that the incident happened, and the disposition, whether they were charged and convicted and the result of the crime. So a few of them were convicted and put in in prison, but very, very few. So that's what I'm working on. So if you and all your listeners, I know that you've been super involved in liberty and police accountability for a long time. Um, so you're, you know, probably one of the inspirations, you guys, for for police accountability. And, and Pete Ayer, who was in New Hampshire for a few years, now he's back traveling again, but he was here also. So I got to meet him. And um, right. uh, I met Damo, I think, a few years ago at Pork Fest, and I met, I think, like, pretty much a lot of the guys who were in the early movement of police accountability, which is, like, I'm like, consider all you guys, like, some of my heroes, because now I'm, like, so big on police accountability. So it's it's awesome to, to get to meet you guys but yeah so that's what i'm kind of trying to do now because I, I didn't think there was anything like it so i'll look into the anarchist um spreadsheet and see what he's working on and see if we're not being too redundant because i don't want to be redundant um but yeah that i just took it in my own hands because i didn't see it happening anywhere else so i want someone to take this project from me and just run with it
1: Dude, that's incredible man you are like a powerhouse right you got you. four books in a year you're running all this the you're you're, you're doing police accountability like you're you're putting these solutions forward to to help keep track of the bad cops. You're also putting out articles on legislation and everything. And you got a, a child there with you, dude, like a six month old baby. Dude, it's uh it's inspirational, man. How, how old are you, dude? If you don't mind me asking, I'm 30, 30. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. That's like uh, you remind me of myself. And I can I think Jason, too, back in the day, you know, like when we started the Free Thought Project 10 years ago, uh, we had that like that exhausting passion to, to stay at it, dude. And it's it's inspirational, man. I got to I got to say I wanted to, you know, I, before we close out, I wanted to just tell you that I I love it. I'm glad you have a six month old son that you're going to be bringing up in this in New Hampshire, you know, for for one. And then just in this environment where you're doing so much good, dude, I, I really appreciate it.
2: And I just want to tell you that. Yeah, thank you so much. And likewise to you guys. Thank you for all that you've done and you continue to do.
0: All right, thinkers. this episode is nearing its end. Just a reminder, we've been working extremely hard to bring you some of the most powerful voices in the Truth Liberty movement. We work tirelessly for you to bring these concepts to the masses and to educate and wake up those who continue to sleep. Please don't forget to consider donating or subscribing if you appreciate the work we do. It's becoming more and more difficult to do this, and we can no longer depend on social media advertisers of big tech monetization. Our support network is you. So help us rebuild this organization by going to our website, thefreethoughtproject.com, and at the top, you'll find tabs for our memberships and donations. Also, please review and rate this podcast if you enjoyed it. Thank you, Freethinkers. All right, guys, check out Alou's books. They're all available for download or uh, hard copies on Amazon. Uh, Books we didn't get to talk about today include Taxation is Theft, How Politicians Force Us to Fund Our Own Abuse, and What We Can Do About It. Another book that caught my attention was They Fear Unity, How the Elites Divide and Control Us, and How We Could Turn the Tables on Them. Or your other book, The Blueprint for Liberty, which also came out this year, The Comprehensive Plans to Save Us from Civil War and Keep Our Nation Peaceful and Free. All, all of your books seem very compelling. I, I hope to, to read some. And uh, I also know that, I saw that your audio books are available on Audible, uh, but please tell our audience where to find your work, how they could follow you and the best way to support you.
2: Yeah, thank you so much. So three of them are on Audible. I have Free Staters Libertarians um, narrate all three of those and I'm working on all the rest as well. So hopefully they'll all be on Audible eventually because a lot of people ask about that. Um, I have libertyblock.com, aluaxelman.com, I'm also the chairman of the board of the Foundation for New Hampshire Independence, and that's nhindependence.org. And we also have americansups.com. Um, that's Americans United for Peaceful Separation. It's kind of trying to have a conglomeration of all the independence movements from California, Texas, New Hampshire, and others. Um, you can find me on Twitter at alabaxelman and all the social medias and Facebook and stuff. Um, you can follow our, our podcast on, on any podcast catcher or SoundCloud or Rumble or Odyssey. And that's called the just Liberty Block as a podcast. Um, and I think that's about it. All my books are on Amazon, and you can check out alubax for more info. But Amazon's the easiest way to order them. If you're in New Hampshire, come find me. Um, you can buy a, a personalized signed copy from me anytime I always have them on me in my car. Um, I, I accept uh, gold, silver, fiat, crypto, everything, ammo, anything you want to barter for. So um and I also have alluacxelfate.com, which is my fitness personal training. I teach some little porcupines martial arts. Um, out of my home gym. So, and that's all axelfit.com. So I have that website as well for the fitness side and, and mostly fighting and powerlifting.
0: Well, I think I'm going to add you to the list of our guests that never sleep. So uh, <laughs>
2: nope, nope.
0: <laughs> thank you for joining us today, man. It was a pleasure talking to you. I'm glad we had this conversation. Glad to learn a little bit more about you. And, you know, also as Matt said, you know, I'm thankful for your passion, your dedication, to educating the public as to what a free world could look like and consist of. And um, yeah, also as Matt mentioned, you know, you're a prolific writer, you exhaust yourself for the cause. And uh, if we had more people with your level of commitment for freedom, we'd probably be living in a a much different place. So thank you for what you do, Halu. And uh, hopefully we could have you on again sometime.
2: Yes, sir, I'd love to. Thank you so much. I appreciate you guys so, so much. It's an honor to meet you and be on the show.